Hello everyone, my name is Martin Soha. I'm a research fellow in the Center of Asian Affairs at the University of Łódź, which is a university-based think tank monitoring the situation in Asia-Pacific. Let me welcome you to the first podcast from the series on changes in Japan's energy policy. There are many interesting issues regarding Japan's energy strategy, but probably the most controversial at the moment is the future of Japan's nuclear energy sector. Let me remind you that before the Fukushima Daiichi disaster, Japan had a fleet of 54 operational nuclear reactors, which were responsible for 30% of overall electricity production. Right now, only nine reactors have been restarted, and the future of the rest of them is still uncertain. Before we talk about, talk about what's happening in Japan's energy sector, let me tell you a little bit about the origins and history of the Japanese nuclear program. I would like to point out certain characteristic features of nuclear governance, which are important in explaining the current situation. But before we start, I should probably warn you that this podcast may sound a little like I'm a bit biased and after, uh, and after listening to it. But before you, we start, I should probably warn you that this podcast may sound like I'm a bit biased and after listening to it, you may get the idea that I'm trying to present some unclear anti-nuclear power message which I assure you is not the case. Personally, I do believe that nuclear power generation is a viable choice for many countries and those countries have every right to develop such energy programs as long as those programs are safe and open to international supervision. With that in mind, let's talk about the history of, Jap of the Japanese nuclear program. We need to remember that securing access to energy resources like oil and gas has always been a priority for Japan's domestic and foreign policy. After the end of the Second World War, Japan began a very swift process of rebuilding its economy, which resulted in uncontrollable growth of energy demand. In the early 1960s, uh, Japan's energy sector was in 60% dependent on burning coal. Coal, which is not an efficient energy source, uh, was also very problematic because of the heavy air pollution. Japanese economy, which was growing rapidly, had to look for alternative sources of energy, which marked the beginning of increasing the role of oil shipped from the Middle East. The process of developing the oil-based power plants was very quick, and in the year 1966, Japan's energy demand was covered in 60% by burning oil. This number increased to 77% in 1975. Japan and many other Western economies decided to develop an oil-based energy strategy because the prices of oil in the 1960s were very low. The situation changed completely after the oil shocks of 1973 and 1979, which caused a significant increase in the prices of oil on global markets and dealt a heavy blow to Japan's economy. Once again, the Japanese government was forced to look for alternative sources of energy. For example, in 1974, uh, so a year after the oil embargo was placed, Japan launched its first government-funded research projects in solar power and sustainable energy called the Sunshine Project. In 1980, the new Energy and Industrial Technology Development Organization was established, which to this day is responsible for research and development of new energy technologies. But the biggest change that could be observed in the 1970s and 1980s was a very prompt development of Japan's nuclear energy program. Japan started research on nuclear power plants soon after the United States launched the initiative called Atoms for Peace in 1954. The first nuclear reactor in Japan, uh, the Tokai nuclear power plant, was commissioned in 1966. In 1970s, First light water reactors were built by the American companies, which later provided licenses for concerns like Mitsubishi and Hitachi and enabled them to start domestic production. The nuclear program received the full support of the Japanese government and bureaucrats from the Ministry of International Trade and Industry. 
Although the government did not nationalize the nuclear energy sector, it worked together with regional power utilities and assisted them in the process of selecting suitable sites for building new reactors. The bureaucrats and energy companies targeted small towns and depopulated areas as possible candidates for hosting new nuclear power plants. Although the government did not nationalize the nuclear energy sector, it worked together with regional power utilities and assisted them in the process of selecting suitable sites for building new reactors. The bureaucrats and energy companies targeted small towns and depopulated areas as possible candidates for hosting new nuclear power plants. Of course, the Japanese government and energy utilities had to fight the anti-nuclear movement and local opposition, which from the late 1950s managed to prevent the construction of around 50% of all planned nuclear power plants. We could observe a similar situation in the United States, where plans to build nuclear reactors were practically blocked by the Three Miles Island nuclear accident in 1979. Although the United States managed to build nearly 100 nuclear reactors, after the incident the process of building new power plants in that country was significantly slowed down. Unlike the United States, Japan's nuclear program did not suffer much damage from international nuclear incidents like the Three Miles Island accident or the Chernobyl disaster of, 19, uh, of 1986. Unlike the United States, Japan's nuclear program did not suffer much damage from international nuclear incidents like the Three Miles Island accident or the Chernobyl disaster of 1986. Since the year 1980, Japanese utilities have built 33 nuclear reactors. Before the Fukushima disaster, government planned to increase the role of nuclear power in total electricity production to around 40%. I will try to answer the question of how Japanese government was able to do that. One of the objectives of the governmental bodies responsible for developing the nuclear program was convincing the public that nuclear technology is not dangerous. If we look at that fast uh, process of building nuclear reactors across Japan, we can safely state that they succeeded. Therefore, we should ask the question of how did the government manage to convince people of the only country in the world which suffered from two atomic bombings that nuclear power is nothing but safe, cheap and reliable. Achieving this task required close and coordinated cooperation of the central government, energy utilities and other pro-nuclear groups in Japan. This policy created a very strong network of vested interests in promoting and expanding the nuclear program. Jeff Kingston, in one of his articles, used the term nuclear village, which describes representatives of pro-nuclear groups whose priority is to protect the nuclear power in Japan at all costs. Let us start with identifying the, the members of the Japanese nuclear village. Certainly one of the most important group are energy utilities like TEPCO, which is the shortcut for Tokyo Electric Power Companies. There are 10 big energy power companies in Japan, and all of them except for Okinawa Electric Power Company were producing electricity using nuclear power. Those energy companies could reap the benefits of the oligopoly in the Japanese energy market, which means that they did not have to compete with uh, other energy companies in their area of operation. Next important group of the nuclear village are members of the parliament, majority of whom support the party line of developing nu nuclear power in Japan. In return, Japanese politicians could count on generous contributions and electoral support from the utilities. An interesting fact is that before Fukushima, among the members of the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, as well as opposition parties, there was no major dispute regarding the future of nuclear power, with the majority supporting further development of the program. Other crucial members of the nuclear verge are the bureaucrats, mostly from the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry. 
These are the people responsible for developing Japanese energy security strategy. Therefore, their interest in success of the nuclear program is rather pragmatic. Nuclear power has been recognized as one of the most reliable ways of diversifying the energy mix and securing power resources for the developing economy. The bureaucrats from the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry were traditionally one of the biggest supporters of developing nuclear program in Japan. The rapid spread of nuclear power generation throughout the country created some interesting network of relations between the central government and utility companies on one side and local governments on the other. Local governments which accepted nuclear power plants became dependent on subsidies and grants provided by the central government. We should also remember that in areas hosting nuclear power plants, nuclear utilities are one of the biggest providers of work for the local population. Therefore, prefectures and cities which already accepted nuclear power facilities tend to express pro-nuclear leaning. Another important group consists of members of the academia and higher education and research institutions, which play multiple roles. The most important one is conducting research on new energy-related technologies, which enable utilities to build new generations of nuclear reactors. Members of the academia are usually invited to various advisory panels, consulting and advising the government on how to prepare uh, the energy policy. Interesting enough, before Fukushima disaster, among the members of those advisory panels, you could hardly find specialists or researchers which could oppose nuclear power. Another important function of the pro-nuclear members of the universities was reassuring the population that nuclear technology was safe and efficient. The last group which I'm going to mention are the local and national media representatives, the majority of which also presented a pro-nuclear stance. Local and national media are the main platform of informing the Japanese population about the benefits of safe nuclear power. The best way of explaining how nuclear circles influenced media coverage is by using an example of local media in the areas hosting nuclear power plants. The energy utility is often uh, the biggest client for local media company. In some cases, incomes of local newspapers or radio and TV stations are highly dependent on the orders coming from the closest power operator. That's why it is very unlikely that such companies would publish materials criticizing their biggest client. As you can see, we can find advocates of nuclear power in the most influential decision and opinion-making groups in Japan. Some of those groups were and still are dominated by the pro-nuclear advocates who take advantage of funding or other perks coming from energy utilities or the central government. To protect their interests, those groups not only worked together to expand the nuclear program, but they also attempted to limit the access of opposing groups to the decision-making process in Japan's energy policy. This kind of discrimination may take different forms. For example, a politician who is openly opposing nuclear program may find it difficult to get important positions in his or her party. The scientist who is questioning the cost-effectiveness of the nuclear program may encounter problems with receiving grants or governmental and university funding for his or her research. Now let us see who is on the other side of the nuclear discourse. Several politicians in Japan openly oppose nuclear power and some of them are even occupying important positions in the government. An interesting example is the current Minister of Defense and former Minister of Foreign Affairs, Kono Taro, who used to be very outspoken in his opposition to nuclear utilities used to be is probably the right expression here because Kono's official views on nuclear power were clearly toned down after he became a minister. As I mentioned before, the majority of the ruling LDP, uh, but also the majority of opposition before Fukushima disaster, were supportive of nuclear power. 
If we look at the Japanese bureaucracy, there is also no clear candidate for the position of the most anti-nuclear ministry. The Ministry of the Environment, which theoretically should supervise the energy utilities and look after the safety of nuclear power plants, did not have competences to do so. Most of the monitoring and supervising responsibilities were given to the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, which at the same time is the ministry in charge of expanding the nuclear program. Therefore, the majority of the anti-nuclear activities and actions are undertaken by NGOs and anti-nuclear organizations like the Citizens Nuclear Information Center, No Nukes Plaza Tokyo, Green Action Japan, Stop Roka Show and Greenpeace. Unfortunately, those organizations and experts supporting them have very limited access to the decision-making process in Japanese politics, which puts them at a great disadvantage. Again, I would like to underline that the purpose of today's podcast was not to convince you that nuclear power in Japan or any other country is wrong. I told you the story of Japan's nuclear program because, in my opinion, the Fukushima nuclear disaster changed the way the Japanese people and representatives of the decision-making groups look at the future of nuclear power in this country. I also believe that the disaster brought some interesting institutional and legal changes, which to some extent challenged the dominance of members of the nuclear village in the decision-making process. I will tell you more about what happened after Fukushima in my next podcast. I hope you enjoyed our recordings. I wish you all good luck and hope to hear from you in the comments section. Goodbye.